We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Cultivating a Positive Classroom Culture through Civil Conversations webinar today with our authors and then also presenters, Beth Pandolfo and then Katie Cubano. We're so excited to hear from you. And All right. Thank you for joining us with a Solution Tree EdWeb uh, webinar here with Beth and Katie. We do want to remind you that this book is actually uh, ready for you to order your copy today. Go to solutiontree.com slash your masterclass. A little bit about our presenters here before we get started. Um, I'll go ahead and read this off, but then you will also have access to their short bio in the um, in the website that they have on the web page for EdWeb. So our Beth Pendolfo author and presenter is an also an instructional coach and has taught English at the high school and college level for over 20 years. She is passionate about supporting teachers and developing a classroom culture with a strong social and emotional foundation in order to create powerful learning experiences. Her work is grounded in the belief that the path of improving education lies in listening to the unique needs of each school its leaders, teachers, and students. All sessions with Beth are customized based on conversations with school leaders in order to most effectively meet each school's needs. And also Katie Cubano, Cubano is an educator focused on supporting teacher leadership to move toward curriculum and instruction that effectively and equitably meet students' needs as well. After teaching English for over a decade, she became an instructional coach in 2019 Katie is, a pas is passionate about providing each student access to their civil rights education and supporting teachers and schools towards expanding their vision of what it means to teach for a more civil, sustainable, and just future. And just future. Thank you so much to you both. We are so excited to hear from you, and I'll go ahead and hand over this webinar. Thank you, Prisma. Welcome, everyone. I'm Beth Pandolfo. Uh, first, I just want to tell you that I am feeling under the weather, so I am going to push through this and do the best that I can. Like Prisma said, I am an instructional coach for grades 6-12. I taught English at the high school and college level for over 20 years. In 2018, I trained at the Moth Teacher Institute to learn about the art of storytelling and the power that it has to connect to people. And I'm a mom to these three. And if you're joining us on the podcast, I'm showing a picture of my three adult children. Hi, everybody. I am so happy to be with you here today. I'm also an instructional coach um, for the secondary grades. And as Prisma said, I taught English for about 11 years before moving into an instructional coaching role four years ago. Um, I'm an active member of NCTE's Conference on English Leadership, and I'm chairing this year's CEL convention in Columbus, Ohio. So if you're coming for NCTE, please consider joining us. It runs right after. I hope to see you there. And here is a, a photo of my newly grown family of four. So I have my headphones here in case my, uh, in case my little one, in case you happen to hear her while we're working here together today. So before we move on, we want to just go through our session learning outcomes. 
Our first session learning outcome for today is to understand our book's approach to professional learning and how it can foster collaboration to devise solutions that really work for your school. Secondly, and you know, this is in our title, this might be the reason you joined us today, we want to explore ideas from thought leaders featured in our chapter, Fostering Civil Conversations for a More Civil Society, in order to understand how, as educators, we can empower our students to cultivate a more civil society. And uh, toward that end, one of our, our, our last learning outcome here is to practice a strategy for cultivating civil discourse in the classroom. And so what we'd like to do with you today is begin by welcoming you into this space and sharing with you our inspiration and structure of our book. Then we're going to move right into focusing on chapter three, fostering civil classrooms for a more civil society, walk you through one of the classroom strategies from the chapter that you can use with students, and then we'll move into our reflection and Q&A. The resource sheet for this session is going to come through the chat right now, and it is also available in the archives. Okay. So before we uh, jump into our welcoming ritual, we'd really love to get an idea of who's joining us today and, and what roles everyone is coming from. So if you could please respond uh, to the poll in the that you see on your screen here to help us get a sense of it. Looking like lots of classroom teachers with us today and lots of people working in roles that are not sort of defined by these categories here. So we would love if you share those roles in the chat. Yeah, so many interesting roles. So I'm gonna go ahead and close the poll and get a, I'll give everybody a um, we'll give everybody a moment too to head over to the chat to see some of the different roles folks are working in here. Yeah, just a real variety of different roles, supporting teachers, supporting students. So from both of us, thank you for all the things that you do um, every day. All right, so um, we're going to move forward into our welcoming ritual. Since this book that Beth and I wrote has been our attempt to create what we want in a meaningful professional learning experience, we're curious to hear what types of professional learning experiences have been the most transformative for you. So we'd love if you would in the chat um, share about either a formal or an informal professional learning experience, which has positively impacted your practice. Some ideas here, maybe it's a book or a podcast, an article, or some other text that really changed the way you think about teaching and learning. Or maybe it's an informal experience, thinking or working alongside others, maybe in a book club or a critical friends group or some other cooperative work. Or maybe it was a formal professional learning session, either within or outside of your school or district. So if you could just take a minute to share about some of the professional learning experiences you found most meaningful um, in the chat, that would be great. And we'll give everyone a moment to see some of the responses. Katie brainstorming with fellow educators. I saw John Green's crash course, podcasts. Hmm. Working alongside others, seeing a lot of critical friends group responses. Book studies. Mm -hmm. Unconferences, absolutely. Okay. Head talks. Yeah, just time to play, to be creative with colleagues. PLCs, sure. Time with colleagues. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah. 
So we're going to talk for a couple moments about the inspiration for our book, our why. Um, you know, Beth and I feel like it's really hard to have tr uh, transformative professional learning happen in the very small pockets of time that we have together during the school year. There are so many other things that we need to meet about, so many pressing day-to-day -day matters that impact students and staff and educational outcomes that we need to discuss. Um, and in the time we do have together to devote to professional learning, it feels near impossible to really meet the needs of all teachers as learners with a single focus. And a few years ago in our district, one of our middle schools did a one book, one school initiative where the entire faculty read the same book and administration devoted time during faculty meetings for reading and discussion. And it was really powerful to have everyone engaging in conversations about how the book's ideas could improve outcomes at our school. But then, like Katie said, the experience became disjointed because other matters took precedence and also because no single book can possibly resonate with everyone. But it made us think, how could we similarly unite everyone around the same book, but at the same time, offer them a professional learning experience that speaks to them? And for us, the kind of professional learning that really speaks most to us is, is, and this speaks to what some folks were sharing in the chat, the opportunity to really think and talk at ideas we've been reflecting on um, with our colleagues, uh, with people who matter to us as a result of something we read or listened to or learned often outside of our, our school day, Beth and I are often all the time sending each other links, um, you know, texts or Voxer voice notes with podcast links or article links from thinkers from many diverse fields and really considering how those ideas can apply to teaching and learning. And in our role as instructional coaches, we quickly figured out that so many of our colleagues feel the same way and we're really hungry for these conversations and jumped at the opportunity to welcome us as thought partners and share what they were reading or listening or thinking about. But what's also true is that people are tired and this is a hard job. All of the jobs um, that we're doing here are hard jobs and not everyone has bandwidth, as much bandwidth as they'd like to invest in professional learning that involves reading outside of the field of education, especially during the school year, even though when they do, some of those, those experiences have been among the most invigorating professional learning experiences that people may have had. So we thought, what if a school department or team could unite around a book that offered them access to thought leaders from outside of education? And then what if at the same time, educators could choose to read about the issue that feels most urgent to them? And what if we wrote a book that offered strategies that teachers could use in their classrooms and questions to facilitate reflection and conversation? And what if the book itself could inspire educators to leverage their collective efficacy to devise creative solutions that would work in their school? And Toni Morrison famously said, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And for us, this is that book. So the way we decided to structure the book was it features standalone chapters of different lengths that can be read in any order. So sort of like long research-based articles surrounding a different topic. It explores ideas from thought leaders from outside the field of education. So two to three thought leaders, a chapter. It offers inspiration and ideas. It can be read independently or in collaboration with others. 
And it can unite departments, teams, or schools with one book while still providing choice. We encourage you to check out the reproducibles from our book on the Solution Tree website. You can find the link on the resource sheet or you could grab it from the chat now. So we're going to highlight a couple of the thought leaders from the specific chapter that we're focusing on today in a little while, but we also, we keep saying outside of the field of education. So we wanted to give you a taste of the thought leaders um, that really, that span a wide, diverse, a diverse uh, set of um, fields whose ideas are featured throughout our book. So this is Sean Ginwright, and he is an author and professor in the Africana Studies Department at San Francisco State University. Um, his most recent book is The Four Pivots, Reimagining Justice, Reimagining Ourselves, and that was published last year. And you may be familiar with Ginwright's ideas on shifting from trauma-informed care to healing-centered engagement. So he's one of our thought leaders. This is Jenny O'Dell. She's a writer, an artist, and a Stanford University professor of art and design. And her first book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, was published in 2019. Her newest book was just published, and it's awesome. It's called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. We also highlight ideas from Adrienne Marie Brown. She's a writer and activist and a facilitator. She's worked within the worlds of human rights, social justice movements, and social healing facilitation for many years. Um, in, ad uh, in addition to publishing three books since 2017, she also in 2019 founded the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, and Emergent Strategy is the title of um, the book that we highlight in our book. Um, Emily Oster is an economist and a professor in economics at Brown University, but to many parents, she's more widely known as the best-selling author of the books Crib Sheet and The Family Firm and founder of the website and weekly newsletter Parent Data. This is Adam Grant, who is an author, organizational psychologist, and professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of many books, and his most recent, and one that we loved very much, is Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And lastly, one of the thought leaders we wanted to highlight is Daniel Kahneman. He is a psychologist, economist, and professor at Princeton University. In 2002, he won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for his insights into human judgment and decision-making. His most recent book is Noise, a Flaw in Human Judgment, published in 2021. So each chapter focuses on an issue that is relevant to education and offers the insight of three thought leaders from outside disciplines. For each of the thought leaders, we include two to three specific ideas from each person. So we wanted now to dive into chapter three, which is Civil Classrooms for a More Civil Society. In preparing to write this chapter, we were thinking about how people have such difficulty having civil conversations when they disagree politically or about social issues and how maybe the work we do in classrooms can prepare our students to do better. In this chapter, we're gonna focus on, for the webinar, these two thought leaders, Ezra Klein, who's an author and a journalist, and Francis Kissling, who is the president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy. The first person we highlight is Ezra Klein. In 2020, he published a book entitled Why We Are Polarized, and we look to his book for answers on what he sees as barriers to engaging in civil conversations. 
And here are three of the barriers we highlight in this chapter. So the first one Ezra Klein talks about, he calls like-minded groups. So he talks about the human tendency to organize into like-minded groups around sports teams, common interests, common backgrounds, and how we have this inherent tendency to cleave to those with similar characteristics and viewpoints. And Klein believes that this primal instinct to organize ourselves into groups and thus view others with skepticism and distrust seems to be inhibiting our ability to work together toward the collective good and find solutions to pressing problems that we face together, like think climate change. I was thinking um, with like-minded groups, I was thinking about my son, he's a sports fan. And when we get to the World Series or the Super Bowl, and one of his favorite teams is not, you know, in it, I'll say, well, who you're rooting for? And he always chooses to root for the team that the fans of his favorite team hate <laughs> the least. And I just think, right, that is what we do. The next thing that Klein talks about are mega identities. He says this is a barrier to civil discourse because what we do is we, we develop our sense of self by like these mega identities. We take our race, religion, gender identity, politics, personal beliefs, and kind of stack these and form this one mega identity rather than maybe defining ourselves by our morals, values, and core beliefs. And then these mega identities come tied with our political affiliations. And then we react to any attack on our groups, even if we're unfamiliar with the issue, as an attack on ourself. And Ezra Kindlight writes, and I love this, we know who we are more than we know what we believe about each policy or moment. So in our quest to protect our identities, we will defend or fight against an issue that we don't even really know very much about. And lastly, Klein sees social media and news media as a barrier to civil discourse. If you think about it, media is not a nonprofit public service. It is a business. And what they decide to publish is what will attract the most clicks and likes and has the greatest potential to go viral. And oftentimes that is an inflammatory piece that shows only one side. This business of newsmaking in the social media era is contributing to widening social divides. Okay, so now we're going to dive into the perspectives of Frances Kissling, who is another author that we highlight in Chapter 3. Um, Frances Kissling, as Beth mentioned, is the president of the Center for Health Ethics and Social Policy. She's also a visiting scholar at the Center for Bioethics in the Perelman School of Medicine at UPenn. And much of her work has really centered on communicating across deep religious and political divides. So one idea that she brings to the surface for us uh, is that we, we need to seek to de-emphasize common ground. So she notes that when we set out to decrease divisiveness, whether it's in our classrooms, in our families, in our schools or communities, we're so often tempted to do so by finding something, anything at all that we can agree on. And this is totally natural. It grows from our desire to decrease confrontation and find similarity and move toward that instinct that Klein highlights to maintain like-minded groups. But Kissling actually sees this as a chief mistake that we make when we're attempting to communicate across serious disagreements and divides. While it seems like it's an instinct that leans us toward basic civility, it really is when we're, when we're looking for common ground, more essentially a pressure and not a social pressure that's healthy or productive. 
uh, more often it actually harms the likelihood that will leave a conversation less divided, feeling less divided and less apart from someone than we began it. Um, she suggests that we sort of let go of this pressure to find common ground and admit that we actually do disagree very deeply on an issue. And when we do that, we can leave behind this habit. And truly, if we're honest with ourselves, I know if I'm honest with myself, this feels like a relief um, because this suggestion releases us from that pressure. How often do we make very earnest attempts at finding common ground with our family or friends or colleagues only to end up feeling deflated because our attempts only resulted in like some combination of saying something we don't believe or not saying what we really do believe or just sort of placating our discussion partner to be nice, right? And as uncomfortable as it may feel, if we want to decrease divisiveness, we really have to find another way. This is not going to do it. So what is the other way? Kissling talks about prioritizing instead mutual understanding. So when we do this, we seek to both understand the positions of those with whom we disagree and then actually go a step further and begin to identify what in that position, even though we disagree with it, rings good and true with us. So she wants us to ask ourselves questions like, what is it in your own position that gives you trouble? What is it in the position of the other that you're attracted to? And, and where do you have doubts? And, you know, this is a tall order, perhaps. So many contemporary issues feel very intransigent. But we also can't live our way into a more civil society by refusing to engage with people with whom we disagree, or when we do engage, seeking only to rebut or repel, right? So mutual understanding really requires us to grapple with the complexities of, of other people and their perspectives, and, and more deeply, the values and the ethics that underpin them. And along with this willingness to seek out the good in the position of the other, Kissling really urges us to reject an instinct we often have to view one side of any serious divide as righteous, right, and the other side as completely wrongheaded. Her experiences, uh, experiences communicating across deep divides very deep divides with very divide, very big hot button issues uh, has shown her that most people on both sides of an issue actually do seriously engage with the deep and important questions the other side cares about, even if they disagree with the motivating value that the other side might hold sacred. So with the ideas from Klein and Kissling in mind, we're going to move forward. Um, after in our in our book, after diving into the ideas from thought leaders, each of our chapters offers you strategies that you can use with your students. And this strategy in particular was designed to address some of the issues that we just talked about. Students, in our experience, seem really quick to defend and sort of argue against positions that they may not have completely thought through. And we worry that this process that they're going through to form their opinions, is more informed by what Beth was speaking to earlier, their group identification, their political influence, and not so much by their deeper felt sense of values and ethics. And we worry that with all of the work we do around helping students to think and write and speak persuasively, that they are not getting enough opportunities to actually hold up their opinions for serious consideration before they start being persuasive, understand where those opinions come from, why they have them, and sort of build some meaningful schema to understand the issues more deeply and to engage more thoughtfully with both their own ideas and with their peers. So with that in mind, we designed this classroom strategy. And the, uh, the essential question we have for this strategy is, how can we help our students forge a stronger sense of their identity 
in terms of their values and ethics rather than their politics or those of their family so that they are better prepared to engage in civil conversations. So we're going to take you through that now. So step one, to help students begin to be less polarized in their thinking, this exercise is intended to be used with any text that demonstrates an opinion or position. So these texts can be print or digital readings or speeches or videos, any medium that expresses a nuanced opinion that you'd like students to critically read and think about. So we're gonna walk through this exercise together and Katie and I selected a recent issue that is not a hot button issue, we thought, um, in which there are very different opinions. And we're gonna do more than just look at both sides. We're gonna think deeply about each side, look at the values that underpin each position and see how this approach lends itself to feeling more compassion towards the other side and a willingness to engage in conversation. So to give you a little context about the issue we selected. Wait, I'm sorry, Beth. I'm just going to interrupt you really quick. Um, I forgot to mention that if you could go to the chat, we're going to be using a values list. It's from Brene Brown, and it's posted there in the chat for you. So I, I want us to take a minute to look at that before we actually start examining the issue. Sorry about that, Beth. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So we're going to look at this issue. But we want to look at, when we look at all of these sides and all of the opinions, like what are the values that are underpinning these positions? Because when you look at the values, you start to feel a little bit more compassion for where the person is coming from, even if you still don't agree. And that paves the way toward a more civil conversation. So if you were able to get the values list from the chat, it also is in the archive then we will move ahead and walk through this exercise. And the first step will be listening to Elizabeth Gilbert on her decision to, to delay her book from publication. Hi everybody, it's Liz and I have an announcement to make. So last week, I announced the um, upcoming publication of my most recent novel, a book called The Snow Forest, that was set in the middle of Siberia in the middle of the last century and told the story of a group of individuals who made a decision to remove themselves from society, to resist the Soviet government, and to try to defend nature against industrialization. But over the course of this weekend, I have received an enormous, massive outpouring of reactions and responses from my Ukrainian readers, expressing anger, sorrow, disappointment, and pain about the fact that I would choose to release a book into the world right now, any book, no matter what the subject of it is, that is set in Russia. And I wanna say that I have heard these messages and read these messages and I respect them. And as a result, I'm making a course correction and I'm removing the book from its publication schedule. It is not the time for this book to be published. And um, I do not want to add any harm to a group of people who have already experienced and who are all continuing to experience grievous and extreme harm. Um, so that is the choice that I have made. 
and I've got other book projects that I'm working on and I've made a decision to turn my attention to working on those now. So I just wanted to let everybody know that and thank you very much. Okay, so I hope a lot of people, thanks Katie for doing that, were able to now access the values list. So if you look at these values and you listen to what Elizabeth Gilbert said about why she is pulling her book um, and not having it released, at least for now, I would like you to think about what are the values, whether you agree with her or not, what are the values um, that are underpinning this decision? And if you could think of one or two, if you could send them through the chat. So again, what are the values that are underpinning Elizabeth Gilbert's decision not to release her book based on the feedback? Well, now I'm distracted. Kindness, respect, compassion, empathy. So many people saying empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Respect, accountability has come up a few times. And we're hoping that as we go through this, that you'll start to notice that when you start kind of stepping away from whether you agree or disagree and start thinking about values, how that's where we find our common humanity and can connect to each other, even when we disagree. So thank you for doing that. When Katie and I were going through this exercise, we came up with kindness and integrity. So then the next thing that we think about is thinking about the underlying values. So what are the values? Is this what we just did? What are the values that seem to underpin the position being defended or argued? And then once you think of the values, in what ways do you see these values as important and worthy of defense? So, I mean, certainly for kindness and integrity, you know, there was, you know, Katie and I really respect her for being so kind and having such integrity and making this decision and desiring not to do any harm. And now that doesn't mean that necessarily we immediately agreed with her. But we definitely were like, we see those values and we respect those values. Okay. So once you've looked at a position with students and you have um, you know, thought through these questions that we've just worked through together, the next step would be considering some alternative positions. So in the slides that follow, uh, we're going to read through some thoughtful criticisms of Gilbert's decision to pull her book from publication. And as you consider each person's opinion, we're going to continue to consult that values list and type in the chat what we seem to be noticing. Um, what are the underlying values guiding the critique that we're, that we're seeing? And though we know it's not great practice to read slides aloud, especially ones with lots of print, um, we will be reading the next few slides aloud so that those, of, uh, uh, those who are joining us on the podcast can also engage with the ideas. Okay. So here is the first piece of critique from the author Francine Prose. And she says, what will happen if, if authors allow themselves to be bullied by their readers? What if the themes we write about and how we write about them are to become the subject of a general referendum? Social media has facilitated campaigns such as the one against the snow forest, choosing books and writers as soft targets in the effort to suppress free speech. 
to determine what can and can't be said. So let's take a moment, go ahead and add in the chat what you notice, what are the underlying values here? Freedom. Yeah, self-expression I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. Self-determination. Thank you for engaging with that. You can continue adding ideas. Mm. Quality, even a sense of liberation, authenticity. Okay. Right, the next piece of uh, critique is is a um, is taken from later in the same piece by Francine Prose, and you can find all of these links in the resource document we shared. So if you want to follow up later, check them out. Do so. This one says, I've always thought that the great subject of literature is the question of what it means to be a human being. Whether we like it or not, whether we are proud of it or not, cruelty and violence have always been part of the human experience. It's hard to think of a situation worth writing about that doesn't involve conflict of some sort. So we'll invite you again to hold that up for consideration. What are the values that seem to be underpinning this critique? Wow, lots of folks feeling like honesty, a lot of honesty, responsibility, responsibility to telling the truth. I'm, I'm uh, inferring here. Okay. And then we'll look at one more idea here. This is from the writer Lee Stein. Gilbert, Gilbert's self-cancellation sets a dangerous precedent for authors who lack her wealth, career stability, and clout. If writers have to participate in the creator economy to earn a living in this industry, what happens when their audience demands a product recall? A novel can take many years to write. There's no way to predict whether you'll sell it to a publisher, let alone predict how geopolitics will impact the public reaction to your work. So a little bit of a different take here. Again, let's sit with this a minute and see what values seem to be underpinning. Mm, justice. Yeah, accountability to others, courage. Fairness came up when Beth and I were discussing this, certainly.
Okay. And security. Thank you for with that. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to move forward. So finally, once you've looked at a position, worked through it with students, looked at some alternative positions, uh, the exercise invites students to reflect on the issue in a larger way by thinking through those questions that Francis Kissling poses that I mentioned earlier. So after examining both sides of the issue, consider which side you feel more strongly about. So we're not just looking to jump to a position, but certainly, you know, you have a leaning one way or another. So this is what it could sound like. So Katie and I had talked this through and the side that we feel strongly about, we are thinking that Elizabeth Gilbert should publish the book on the original time schedule. Yeah, that was our leaning. And the values that underpin that are many, uh, self-expression, creativity. And then we also had some real concerns about allowing social media outcry to influence decisions about art. Um, which I guess when we examine that more carefully might seem like an issue of fairness, um, but also something about integrity, sort of resisting the pull of, of the masses, even, you know, even if that, even if there are really good reasons on both sides. So I'll let Beth continue. Yeah. So the next question is, what is in your position that gives you trouble? So it gives us trouble even contemplating what Elizabeth Gilbert can or cannot do. She can publish or not publish whatever she wants. It's not up to us. Also, we didn't read the book. So how informed of a decision are we making? Maybe there's something that we're missing. And then Kissling asks us to ask ourselves, what is it in the position of the other that we're attracted to? And there is so much in the position of the other that we are attracted to, to here. All of those values that we that were in the chat there when we first looked at the video, kindness, love, caring, a desire to do no harm, and a sense of integrity in acting in alignment with her values um, as a person. So we, we really admire all of those things. And then lastly, sort of thinking, where do you have doubts? So... We have doubts in our own position. Maybe publishing the book does have the potential to do real harm. We have doubts that Gilbert's decision to halt publication could affect other artists and writers. Um, maybe that critic's really overstating the case. I mean, just because Elizabeth Gilbert does this, is that really setting a precedent for all artists and writers? And so you can walk through this strategy with your students, again, using any stimulus that expresses a position you want them to engage with in a deeper way. And we hope that you notice that through doing this, how you really feel a lot more compassion for each side because you don't feel so firmly attached to your position when you deeply consider the other. We also encourage you to check out the reducibles to get a sense of the other classroom strategies we developed for the chapter, cultivating more civil cla classrooms. And they're available on the Solution Tree website and they're free to download. So finally, when we think about this strategy and what we were hoping to get at through this strategy was thinking about the impact it can have for students. And this is what we think. 
of course, I'm very distracted <laughs> because I want to read everybody's comments, not what I'm talking about. Okay. So we think this approach, yeah, because I'm not, every time, like when I said what our position was, Katie, I was kind of like, is that our position? Because I also, yeah. um, it cultivates self-awareness and self-acceptance. Um, it gives students the space to explore their own values, beliefs, and ethics and express their own opinion. The next thing that we think that it does is it promotes curiosity instead of polarization. It asks students to consider the other side more deeply, not with the purpose of winning or destroying, but with curiosity and humility. We also feel like it nurtures a sense of inclusivity. It helps students feel included, that they can express their opinion and their opinion is met with respect, even though we think differently. Um, and it really works against that tendency toward mega identities that we that we talked about earlier, um, highlighting really how complicated and multi-layered all of these issues are and encouraging students to seek to understand first, not just seek to critique, all of which we feel nurtures a positive classroom culture. Okay, so as we move toward the Q&A um, portion of our time together, we just want to take a moment to show you that each chapter in the book has specific questions designed for introspection and reflection and conversation, as well as some broader questions to support conversation um, within and across chapters. So we're going to share a couple of those now for you to think on, and then we'll move into a question answer portion where we can talk together. Okay, so this is an example, one of the questions at the end of the chapter. Upon reflection, which of your current classroom practices potentially serves to create opinion monsters, which is a term that we that we came up with, that we talk about in the book, people who are sort of just obsessed with their opinion, mega identities, hard to, hard to see anybody else's way. So which of your current classroom practices might serve to create opinion monsters by encouraging students to take sides, by valuing rhetoric over thoughtful contemplation, or in some other way fostering? polarization instead of civility? And what changes could you make to reverse these practices? Yeah. And I mean, over my teaching career, I definitely can say that I've had students choose sides, take a pro or a con, and really the goal of the activity was to argue and win. So I'm not saying that I'm proud of that when I look back on it, but I also can see how that promotes polarization. It does not promote deep thinking about the side that you've you know, chosen to argue for. It doesn't account for the values in the position of the other. So I definitely feel like sometimes the way we do school, when we think about it more deeply, we need to make some adjustments. And that's something that I have definitely done in my classroom. Yeah, and likewise, I think something that, that comes to mind for me is in teaching rhetorical appeals. I've done similar things. I've taught, you know, rhetoric and rhetorical appeals as a way to crush your opponent and be the most persuasive you possibly can, as opposed to being thoughtful and as opposed to thinking really carefully about what I'm hearing and what rhetorical appeals might be shaping that and what might how I can get underneath that a little bit. So, okay. And then here is, um, these are some questions that are a little broader that you would see at the end of a chapter. Like, what is one takeaway from this chapter that you'd like to share with students, colleagues, or your team? And then this next question, uh, what additional readings can you bring to the conversation or what other texts or articles could further advance everyone's thinking? 
we really want to actually invite you. Are there other texts that you have come across that you feel like connect to some of the ideas that we've shared today or some of the topics? And if so, we'd love if you could throw the title in the chat for the other participants and for us. So we'd love to hear from you if you have an answer to that second question. So we'll just give a moment for folks to think that through and respond if you have anything. And if you do have some of those resources that come to mind, um, Beth and I, our contact information can be found in the resource sheet. If you want to keep the conversation going, if you want to share resources that come to mind later, we'd love to, we'd love to communicate with you that way too. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're so happy to get the opportunity to talk through an issue that we feel really, really passionate about. Thank you for your thoughtful engagement um, with these ideas. And, and we hope that you feel, you know, moving forward, like you have a resource that uh, you can come back to, to increase civil conversation in your classroom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both for such an engaging presentation and everybody who is here with us. Uh, we will get into a couple of questions here um, anytime we have the opportunity. So there, um, oh, related to the slides that you just put up, do you have any recommendations for how to de-escalate or redirect opinion monsters? <laughs> Sure. So I think a couple things come to mind. Um, for starters, I think I can speak for both of us when I would say that one way we can do that is actually by placing a lot less emphasis on soliciting students' opinions and far more on providing them time to work out what they really think and why. I think as a matter of trying to engage students, we often jump to, what is your opinion on this? Before we give them that opportunity to really even understand the issue, build some schema, all of that. So I think if we just, first of all, can think, well, do I need to solicit their opinions as much? Or can I actually start with, with building out their understanding as a first instinct? Um, you know, that way that helps us remember that students don't actually have full, fully formed mega identities that Ezra Klein talks about, even if their family members do, even if their community leaders do, and even if it seems like they really do. A lot of times they're trying that out. So if they have that opportunity to think about the values, the ethics that underpin what they're thinking, what others are thinking, that can help in a, in a proactive way. And then another proactive piece that we talk about in this chapter, and you can find um, strategies for this in the reprodu reproducibles, which Beth mentioned, which are free, you can download. Um, there's a link in the resource sheet. Um, we talk a lot about about building classroom norms and doing a lot of work early in the year and cyclically throughout the year um, to, to really very carefully consider what is this space? How do we want to be together in this space? And what does that look like? What does that feel like for everyone? Beth, do you want to add anything? No, I, I agree. I agree. I knew when you said I could speak for both of us, I was like, yep, you can. So yes, 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 yes. Uh, wonderful. So there is another one here um, that mentions, I love the folk, the one before was uh, from Rebecca, uh, but this one is from Mary Ellen. Um, so they say, I love the focus on civil discourse ideas for any sort of, oh, in a question form. So do you have any ideas for any sort of alternate debate club? I have students who really want me to run one, one this year. What was the second part of that? I really have students who 
they want uh, the teacher to run, I believe, an alternate debate club uh, this year. Yeah, Katie, I'll just take a quick, and then sure. if you want to respond. One thing I think is that we don't we don't even necessarily want to say that debate is, that there's no place for debate. No. You know, there is a place for debate. But I just, we're just thinking about how we could have more productive conversations. So I still think that there is a place for rhetoric and there is a place to advance your point. But I also think that if you understand the position of the other, you know, if you really then still feel more firmly, you know, about your position, then there is a place for you to then, you know, I'm going to use the word argue, you know, for what you believe in. So it's like, we're not saying civil conversations and you should never take a position and argue for it. That's okay. But I think that we too often just fall into these binaries. I think this and you think that, and we can't even talk about it. And then we can't even come to any kind of agreement because we can't even talk about it. So I do think that kids can be even more prepared to engage in debate by practicing some of these strategies. They could become better debaters and more thoughtful. You know, we think more thoughtful citizens, which is, you know, who we are graduating ultimately. Okay. Do you agree about um, debate? Yeah. There's still a place for debate. Yep. I think I'll just add that I, I, the other thing that came up for me when you were speaking, Beth, is we're creating more self-aware thinkers right? Who, who understand their perspectives, who understand their positions in a deeper way, not just a, you know, not just a way that corresponds to someone's mega identity in their life. Um, so going along to what you both just said, so um, how do you encourage inclusivity and civil conversations and still protect students from points of view that can cause harm uh, to their identity. Mm, absolutely. We want to be, I think it's important to be absolutely unequivocal that our desire to cultivate more civil conversations in no way grants license to students to say hurtful things or express opinions which dehumanize others. So really we think, and, and we touched on this a little bit with the first question, it's, it's so important to invest serious time and effort again, early in the school year and throughout in co-creating norms and boundaries that really respect the right all students have to access their full humanity um, in the classroom. I want to shout out my friend and colleague, Justin Dolce Mascolo Garrett. We did a lot of work together and Beth and I wrote about that work in our chapter, uh, this chapter, uh, not only norming at the beginning of the year and, and also throughout because it's cyclical, um, but also uh, establishing something that we talk about as baseline assumptions. So things that we can agree together about what is and is not, what is off limits and what is not off limits in terms of what we're going to say. So where the norms sort of dictate the how, the baseline assumptions work to dictate the what. So we really encourage you to check out the reproducibles to support that because certainly all students' humanity needs to be respected. All students need to feel like they belong. We don't want any harm done. You want to add anything to that, Beth? No, I think, I think you said it well. And I've used what Katie and Justin came up with in my role as an instructional coach with a teacher. And we, 
the students were doing some things that were unkind to both the teacher and each other and sort of co-creating norms and deciding how we wanted to be in this space. And one thing the students actually appreciated that they weren't in trouble for acting badly, that it was like, yeah, I act badly sometimes also, but we need to do better. And here are some ways, you know, here are some ways that we can do better. And the students really appreciated it instead of, you know, it, instead of saying, you know, I, we, we can't believe you did this. And, you know, these are all of the punitive measures. So it was, we need to do better. I sometimes say things that, you know, I wish I hadn't said. And that's what happened here. And what was your motivation and why did that happen and how can we do better? So I do think um, I really love a lot of those reproducibles. And when you're trying to develop a positive classroom culture, the more the, the more scaffold you have in place and the more that the students can check themselves, you know, and that they're visible and that they're talked about, you know, during the year, throughout the year, you know, really lays the foundation for this kind of work. And I actually, when you were speaking, it reminded me that there there's the reproducible of the strategy itself. And then I realized that Solution Tree, in all of their grace, underneath the reproducibles, they also have a list of the links from the book. So in the book, we also have um, some sample norms uh, to help and some sample sort of community agreements or baseline assumptions. So you can follow those links, too, if you're like, well, what is that? What would that look like? What would that sound like? Check those out as well. Yeah. And Katie, I will add one thing. So when we co-created these norms and baseline assumptions with the students, I gave those, and this was in high school, but I gave the links to the students and just said, you know, here's the problem we're having in this class. Here is what this could look like. And then, then the students use those to inspire. So it wasn't that, you know, you, that way the, the students could be like, we need this one. This one doesn't make that much sense. And really by and large, they were very much in agreement because we were addressing certain concerns. So yeah, those are some great resources and they're not ours. They're what we got inspiration from and Solution Tree included them on the website. Wonderful, I'll get to it. Uh, one last question here. Um, so this is a question from James um, in relation to a possible solution. Um, is it possible for them to read parts of an article, series of articles on the subject with opposing views and then use these as a basis for discussion? Sure. That sounds great to me. I think that I would say that um, in addition to opinion pieces, maybe something that's just informative in its scope would also be useful. Yeah, well, so then it's like, so you don't, so you're, you're not necessarily going to jump to one opinion or the other. You could sort of enter the conversation being informed, and then maybe you have a different opinion, or maybe you agree a little bit with each one. But I just think even having students practice this kind of thinking in all ways is going to make them more thoughtful and self aware. Because we, one thing that we do see in schools, and again, we're at the secondary level, is we see a lot of kids coming in with these, you know, these very strong opinions that we're always wondering, is that really your opinion? Or is that like what if what your relatives say or what your parents say? And so not that that's our job to police that, but just really to have them ask questions, you know, interrogate these beliefs. And if they really believe them, great, but it gives them some compassion 
for an opposing position, I mean, those are the kind of students that we want to graduate. Well, thank you both uh, so much for just uh, answering all these questions and then also such a great presentation that um, is so beneficial and valuable to just every generation. I feel like your book, your presentation is evergreen because as education evolves, so does each generation that, like you said, we're graduating um, each year. Uh, so we appreciate everything that you've placed in this presentation. So I'll go ahead and continue um, from Q&A. But um, as they mentioned, you can reach out to them through their Twitter and then also through their email that they placed in the, I believe, reproducible or in the archives resources. Um, just really quick, as a reminder, we do want to let you know that you can go to solutiontree.com slash webinars to see the other webinars, and then we'll eventually place this as well. And then also EdWeb will place their recording for this webinar in their website as well. And then also we do want to remind you, as uh, they have reminded you throughout the presentation about their book, solutiontree.com slash your master class. You can go there to see more about the book that is actually coming up. In August 11th, that is when it's getting published, but you can pre-order it. So we're excited about that. If you can go there um, while you're building your toolbox of books for, your, for the beginning of your school preparation. Um, all right. And then we do want to remind you that there is an upcoming uh, solution tree and ed webinar, uh, webinar that's coming up on September 8th at 1 p.m., with Dr. Bogren, Dr. Timothy, and then Dr. Jasmine from Solution Tree as well. And then just, uh, I do wanna leave you with um, anything else from Beth and Katie that you wanna, your last thoughts that you wanna leave us with. Ooh, that's a lot of pressure for No, you, you don't have to. <laughs> but if you wanted to just provide anything else that um, from the presentation, just from yourselves as an author, that's, this is your life's work, your research that you place. So it's it's a lot of things that you put into. Yeah, I guess the, I guess the only thing, Katie, the only thing I would want to say is that you know we created this book because we felt so much that professional development needs to be, you know, needs to offer educators differentiation and choice, like what they offer their students. And we just thought, how could we create that for teachers? Katie, did you want to add something? No, no, just our heartfelt thanks. So happy to be in this space with you all. Wish we could see you, but yes, yes. happy to be here nonetheless. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you again to you both for your time, for your presentation, and everybody who's still here with us. Thank you. Uh, we're going to head and end this session of this webinar. But as I mentioned, you can reach out to them through their Twitter and then also through their email if you want to continue the discussion, as Katie mentioned. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.